This is joy and a privilege for me to be here this morning. Uh, I have heard of New Community long before I uh, first stepped foot through the doors uh, a few years ago when Zox was college pastor. Um, your church, the witness, uh, your ministry here in the city of Chicago, your commitment to lift up Jesus Christ and to radically advance his causes. Um, is well known on our campus. Your pastor has spoken uh, at our, uh, at our, in our chapel. Uh, of course, we also know of uh, that Dr. Peter Cha is here uh, and, and, and many others as well from Trinity. You have been a blessing to us, uh, even 40 miles uh, to the north of you. So thank you uh, for your testimony, your witness, your presence here, and as well as for having me here to come and share uh, in, from, in, in, this, in this beautiful uh, sanctuary building. As Zach mentioned, my name is Felix Theo Nugraha. Uh, Carlton mentioned to me this morning that uh, there was a wager being taken as to how to pronounce my name. And so I hope uh, I won some people some money. Uh, I, was, I was born in Indonesia. Uh, I was actually born as Felix Chu. Uh, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I was born in Indonesia. Uh, but at the time, the Indonesian government required that in order for you to become an Indonesian citizen, you have to adopt an Indonesian name. So when we left the country when I was nine, we adopted the name Theo Nugraha. Theo for God and Nugraha for grace, God's grace. There are seven of us in the world. Uh, my father and mother are living in the San Francisco Bay Area, my brother as well, and my wife Esther and my two little kids. I grew up in Indonesia as a Chinese Christian, ethnically minority, religiously a minority. My identity was something that we negotiated even from the moment I was born. We then moved to Taiwan where my dad studied uh, f- uh, for three years to receive his Master of Divinity degree. And there we were told that we were not true Chinese. We were overseas born Chinese. We had a qualifier in front of our name because we were not born in mainland China or even Taiwan itself. When I was 12, I came to the United States, and then I was known as Chinese-American. Or even among the, our fellow Chinese community, I was not known as an ABC, I was known as an FOB Chinese. I came and adjusted, learned English, eventually moved here to the Midwest in 2002, where I met my wife, a Swedish-American. And we went through the typical tension between me and my parents when my parents insisted that I have to marry a Chinese to keep the family lineage going. In fact, before coming to seminary, my parents invited two elders to come to our house to pray for me and to bless me. And little did I know that halfway through the conversation, that halfway through the dinner, the conversation would take a radical turn from faithfulness to God to how I should go back to Taiwan and marry a fine Chinese girl to be my wife. But here I am, going to, uh, growing up as a Chinese-American, having attended a public liberal state college, and here in, in, uh, in the Midwest, my, uh, the, the Lord saw it fit for me to marry a white Swedish-American who attended one of the most conservative Christian colleges in the country. We worked it out. And then we, God blessed us with two beautiful children, Isaiah and Nora, And from the very get-go, we taught them that they are 
of multiple identities. We have a song that we taught them. They sing, I'm part Swedish, I'm part Chinese, I'm all American. Can I have some milk, please? <laughs> I love my mommy, I love my daddy. This land was made just for me, just for me. We live in a time where our identity is continually being negotiated. As I thought about today, as I thought about, prayed about this morning, I want to invite all of us to wrestle with me together, to think with me together. Because I don't know about you, but even this last week's election, it is becoming more and more evident that as a nation, we are trying to negotiate our identities. When it comes to the issues that we are discovering, when it comes to the issues that we are voting on, we are trying to determine what it means for us to be of different identities, but living in the same community, of worshiping in the same congregation, of living in the same neighborhood. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3, and we'll take a look at verses 1 to 14. The book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. As you know, one the the, the, the church of, uh, in, in the Philippi was established by the Apostle Paul. He went and met a woman by the name of Lydia who, who believed in the message that he brought, to believe in the good news of the gospel. And the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul in prison where he expressed his deep, intense desire and longing to visit them, but was not able to because of his current circumstances. But here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, this is what Paul says as I read the word of the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Do I myself have reasons for such confidence? If other things that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I consider what it means to live in this United States, in this current state of our country, was continually brought back to this text. I want to invite all of us to consider what this text means for us today. Despite being in prison, Paul urged the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. As we all know, the word rejoice means more than just a simple fleeting emotion of happiness, a, a, a temporal, a temporary feeling of, of being excited, but a deep state of being joyful in all circumstances. But why? What is the cause and the foundation of our rejoicing? And it's today that I want to suggest to us that part of the, the one of the key criteria of living in our current world today, in this, living in this country, is to go back to the basics of our Christian faith. And I want to suggest to us that one of the basics of our faith is simply this, that it is not about what we know or what we do, but it is about who we know. Being in Chicago, there's a famous quote been given by a mobster boss who simply said, don't send me nobody that nobody sent me. Don't send me nobody that nobody sent me. It is not about what we do or what we know. It is about who we know. And it's in this text that Paul began to explain what this looks like. He was angry. He was angry about a group of people that he was passionately angry about. He called them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. We know that from the book of Acts that there were a group of people, Jews and even Gentile believers, who insist that for somebody to prove their, their salvation in Christ, they have to observe all the Jewish laws, including circumcision. We know that one of the debates that of the early church was as the gospel began to take hold in the Roman world and the Gentiles began to accept Jesus, there were the Jewish believers who would go around and visit all the churches and say, if you truly are a follower of Christ, you have to observe our Mosaic law and you have to become circumcised. And for some Gentile believers, they were attracted by this new community called the Way, and they were fascinated and wanted to put their trust in Jesus. But as they come to the door, they heard about this thing called circumcision, and they go, ooh, okay, let me back up. Let me give it a second thought. The Jewish believers were adding not just simply requirements to what it means to believe, but often also putting up walls to entry into the community. And this upset Paul because it became a source of significant divide in the church, even a divide and division between Paul and Peter himself. For Peter would go and visit these churches and he would act one way when, this, when these circumcised group were not around and he would act another way when the circumcised group were around. In many ways, the tendency, the innate inclination to divide people, to categorize people into A and B 
is common throughout human history. The, ten the tendency to categorize people into those who look like us, believe like us, act like us, and people who don't act like us, look like us, or, lack, or, or act like us is commonplace. We categorize into people who belong to us, the we and they. Rudyard Kipling noted this in his poem, We and They. He said this, Father, mother, and me, sister, and auntie say, all the people like us are we, and everyone else is they. And they love over the sea, while we, well, then they live over the sea, while we live over the way. But would you believe it? They look upon we as only a sort of they. We eat pork and beef with cowhorn handle knives. They who gobble their rice off a leaf are horrified out of their lives. And they who live up a tree and feast on grubs and clay, oh my, isn't it scandalous? Look upon we as a simply disgusting they. We shoot birds with a gun. They stick lions with spears. Their full dress is un. We dress up to our ears. We like our friends to stay. And after all that, they look upon we as an utterly ignorant day. <laughs> For all good people agree and all good people say, all nice people like us are we and everyone else is they. But if you cross over the sea instead of over the way, you may end by, think of it, looking on we as only a sort of they. We look at people who look like us and think like us and act like us as part of our in-group, the we, and those who behave differently than us as they. It is a human tendency to group people into people like us and people unlike us. But Paul here insists that the mark of belonging to God is not circumcision, but rather confidence in the Holy Spirit and utter dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. True faith, he said, is marked by service to God by His Holy Spirit and those who boast in Christ Jesus instead of having confidence in the flesh. Now, the idea of circumcision as a genuine proof, as a proof of genuine belief may seem really foreign to us. For at, the, for at the end of the day, for us today, circumcision is no more than simply a medical procedure, a decision that is made when someone is born, when a male is born. The idea of circumcision seems to be something that belongs in ages past and no longer pertinent to our church today. But I wonder if there are present-day circumcisions they have slowly infiltrated our, church, our churches. Over the past 40 years, we have seen many Christian leaders argue that to be Christian is to vote Republican. The sanctity of life, often defined as the life of the unborn, ought to be the primary concern for us as Christians in the 20th and 21st century. And rightfully so, many Christians have argued for an expansion of the definition of sanctity of life to include the life of the poor, the marginalized, the forgotten in our society. 
rather than simply being a single issue voter, there are many Christians who have pushed for a wider consideration of issues during the election. Last Saturday, about four days before the midterm election, a prominent Christian author tweeted out that all Christians ought to vote Democrat in order to send a message to the government. The statement was received with both excitement and consternations, with many asking whether such a response is any different than urging all Christians to vote Republican. I raise these questions not so much to convince whether or not Christians ought to vote one way or the other, but to point out that the present-day church have our own practices that we use as a litmus test to define us into we and they. I wonder if the church is not in and of itself in danger of fracturing its ver- into its own version of parties, silos, and camps, making civil conversations about matters of conviction nearly impossible. I wonder if we have imposed new rules to the requirements of faith as if we have somewhat attained our own salvation. I wonder if we have created additional requirements for those who want to enter into the kingdom of God and be a part of our fellowship because we want to make sure that our community look, act, and behave like the way we want them to look, act, and behave. I wonder what would happen if we were to find out that a person sitting next to us did not vote for the same gubernatorial candidate this past Tuesday, a presidential candidate two years ago, or perhaps did not vote at all. What happens when we find out that the person in front of you had a different reaction to the verdict given to the police officer who murdered Laquan McDonald? What happens when we find out that the person behind us have a different reaction to the recent justices added to the Supreme Court as opposed to the justices added under the previous administration. Yuval Levine, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, suggests that as a country, we are becoming increasingly fractured and divided. Rather than being one republic, we are becoming multiple republics that are incapable of talking to one another, nor listen to one another, and therefore much less able to collaborate with one another. But in many ways, for that to happen outside the church, truly, it's not a surprise. It should not surprise us. But I wonder if it is possible that these kinds of fragmentation, disruption, disintegration, sliverization, and splinterization are happening within the church as well. Simply because we have forgotten who it is that unite us together and what it is that bring us together as one. And I wonder if it is time for us to go back to the basic and remember that it is not what we know, but it is about who we know. Paul continues his argumentation by pointing out that his strong objections to the additional requirements uh, given by this circumcision group is not because he does not belong to them, but instead he, of all people, should be about the things that they are about. He reminds the church that whatever they think they have, whatever confidence that they think they have, he has it all the more. 
He was circumcised on the eighth day. He belongs to the people of Israel. He belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, an upstanding model, a poster child for all to behold. When it comes to the law, he is a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, he has persecuted the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, he is faultless. He has followed it down to every jot and tittle. He was born with privilege. But his innate privilege did not stop him from pursuing all these things. He truly was the model student, the exemplary figure to whom every student ought to be measured. But friends, I wonder if we too have put our confidence in these things. For our day today, perhaps it's the right education. Perhaps it's the right school. Perhaps it's the right job. Perhaps it's giving potential. I wonder when it comes even to the church and leadership, if we are using other things as additional qualifications for leadership. Perhaps it's how much a person gives to the church, perhaps is a certain kind of experience, perhaps even confidence in our own racialized ethnic identity. And it's not that in and of itself that these things are harmful, but as long as these things are secondary to our identity in Christ, they are good. But the moment that these things begin to take priority and assume a greater importance than our identity in Christ, we begin to subvert the value of the kingdom of God. Hmm. Let me do something that, I want to wade into something that, that can be kind of tricky for us to think about. If you are like me, I know that you, you, you have heard the phrase identity in Christ being used to marginalize, to erase, or to or, or, or to ignore experiences of the pe- of people of color. When I was in seminary, I was having a conversation with a student after a lecture. And truthfully, I don't even remember what was being discussed. I only remember that it was a class on evangelism, and we were sitting right next to each other. And I was making the point that as a Chinese-American, I have a different take on the passage being discussed in class that day. My friend looked at me in mock surprise and said, Felix, I'm hurt. I've known you for all this time. You never told me that you were Chinese. You couldn't tell? The phrase identity in Christ has been used to ignore, marginalize, genuine socially located experiences of people of color, and not just the people of color, but also women in the church and in society today. He said, Felix, that doesn't matter. We're brothers in Christ. But at the same time, the reality that our identity in Christ must be first and foremost is what Paul calls us to do here in Philippians chapter 3. My identity is that of a Christian called by Christ who happens to be ethnically Chinese. 
And my ethnicity is in and of itself no more or less valuable than any other ethnicity in this world other than the fact that I've been fearfully and wonderfully made and created by God to have certain color hair and hues of skin. And living as citizens in America, I enjoy all the privileges of belonging to this nation, the resources and protection that it provides, but also the rights to participate in this democratic republic and to hold this nation accountable to its founding values and its own self-declaration of self-evident truth that all human beings are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And while this combination of my ethnicity and life in this country have shaped my understanding of God, myself, and my surrounding and my world, this understanding must, be, must take a secondary place under the ultimate eschatological reality that this world is not my own that I do not belong to this world, and that while this world will continue to have wars and rumors of wars, pain, sickness, and grief, crimes, death, and atrocities, this world is still a world deeply loved by God who has given us His only Son, Jesus Christ, to restore all things to you. And even in the midst of the brokenness of this world, we live with an expectant hope that Christ will one day return to establish the new heaven and the new earth where God will dwell with his people, where he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there shall be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because all have been made whole. Sometimes it can be tempting to place our, our confidence in our own flesh, our abilities, and our own accomplishments. But as Paul reminds us, to go back to basics and remember that it is not who we are or what we do, but who we know. What does that mean? This is the basic, the basis of the Christian life. It begins and ends with knowing Jesus Christ. Paul, who has all these things and more, consider it rubbish, trash, garbage, worthless compared to what he has gained in knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. And because he knows Christ, his righteousness is no longer his own, based on his work according to the law as something that can be lost, but rather on the complete and fulfilled work of Christ that can never be lost and can be attained only through faith in Him. And to know Christ, Paul reminds us, is not simply intellectual knowledge, ability to recount and retell what the core of our beliefs are, but an experiential knowledge of knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, but also participation in His suffering, becoming like Christ in His humility humiliation and death so as to somehow attain resurrection from the dead. Power of resurrection but also participation in Christ's suffering. Paul wants us to remember that the power of the resurrection for which he strained for and we all continue to strain for is the ultimate hope 
for the Christian. But lest we be duped into thinking and believing that, into thinking that believing in Jesus means that we will have a worry-free life. Paul reminds us that the power of the resurrection is one side of the coin, and the other side of that coin is participation in Christ's suffering. That is, knowing Christ is to know both the power of Christ's resurrection and his suffering. And it is in this intense crucible of faith that our faith is matured. Paul often speaks about the power of God. He refers to the gospel as the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He talks about Jesus Christ as the power and wisdom of God. And several times, Paul talks about the ultimate power of God as being expressed in raising Jesus from the dead. And friends, this is the same power that is in us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, a verse that is often translated as, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, ought to be translated as, I can do all things through him who gives me power. For the same word is used in that verse as it is used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. There is the same power, the very same power that can raise a dead man from death to life. It's the same power that is in us each and every day. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that carries us to all our challenges and sufferings. But this power is also complemented by our participation in Christ's suffering. The word that is translated here as participation is the same word that we often translate as fellowship, koinonia, a sense of oneness, a sense of community. We are to participate in fellowship. We are to participate fully in Christ's suffering. And that is not a popular message of the Christian life. We are to have deep communal fellowship with Christ's suffering to the point of becoming like him in his death, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that's the same level of suffering that Paul calls us to participate in. But even in the midst of all this, Paul reminds us that all these things have been done. In verse 12, he tells us that as he speaks to the Philippian church, he speaks not as one who have attained all these things. In fact, he is not one who have already arrived at the goal. He is one who is continuing to press on to take hold of these things. But he does not do so as someone who is unsure about the future. He said he is pressing on to take hold of these things that Christ has already taken hold for him. Friends, there's nothing we can do to compel God to love us more. There's nothing we can say to cause God to pour out more of his mercies on us. 
There is nothing we can shout to move God to forgive us more. There's nothing we can accomplish to convince God to accept us more. There's nothing we can give to persuade God to fill us with more of the Holy Spirit. Everything we need has been accomplished on the cross. It is finished, Jesus says. And so as a result, we live as Christians knowing that there is nothing to prove on our behalf, nothing to protect on our accounts, because through Jesus Christ, you are already approved, and who you are in Christ is enough. The price has been won. Christ has taken a hold of it for us. God has called us to it, and all that is left to do is for us to press on. As a child, I love mystery novels. I'll share these stories and take my seat. I was a big fan of mystery novels, and I loved to read books about Sherlock Holmes and other mystery detective type of stories. I would be engrossed in them, and my parents would buy me volumes after volumes, stretching what limited resources that we have so that I can get my scratch my itch of mystery novels. And I would often get so deeply engrossed in them, and I would get so nervous about what's going to happen, and would try to figure out whether it's this or that or this or that. And my dad would always look at me, and he would always figure it out. And he would often read these books without any sense of anxiety, without any sense of tension. So one day I finally said, Dad, how can you read all these novels without getting caught up in all the drama? Why are you so calm when you read all these mystery novels? And he said, oh, you know, it's because I'm smart. You know, can you figure it out? You know, this and this and that. Obviously this person did it. And I'm like, I would go back and reread the book, and I would go, I don't know, I didn't see, I mean, I don't know. Oh, man, that must be really smart. So one day I finally thought, you know what, I don't think so. I've read these books. It's not that clear. So finally I said, Dad, really, why are you not anxious when you read these books? How do you always know is this person or that person? And how do you always know when this clue is not important? Finally he looked at me and smiled. And he said, this is what I do when I read books. I read the beginning. I read the middle, and I read the end. Then I decide whether or not it's worth it for me to go back to read the book. Friends, we live in an increasingly tense world. We live in a country where it's becoming more and more difficult for us to coexist. We live in a society where differences seems to be magnified, where emotions is caught up, and rather than being able to have convictional conversations, it seems that we are merely shouting past one another. As you look around the brokenness of our world, the migrant caravan that is marching toward the border, the fire that is consuming the state of California, or even our own community, the brokenness that we see in our neighborhoods, the homelessness, the violence, and the pain that is 
seen and reported and many, many more that goes unnoticed. It is easy to give in to discouragement, to depression, and to a sense of hopelessness. But as Paul encouraged the church in the Philippi in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And He can do so, and we can do so. Because the Christian life is no different than having read a book. The beginning, the middle, and the end. And as we continue to live our lives, we know the ending of the story. We know that Christ has won the victory. We know that His heart breaks for the conditions of our world, but He has not given up on us. And that one day He will return and restore our world and make it new. And all that He calls us to do is to press on. Press on. In those days when the sky seems extremely cloudy, put one foot in front of the other and press on. And we do so not by our own strength, not by our own accomplishments, not by our own intellect, not by who we are, but by the power of God who has raised Jesus from the dead. Press on.